On guard. That's... Wait! What? That's... 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 You know what? Stop it, alright? All of you. I'm just hold trying on, hold on. I've got this. this. I've got this intro. Right. Welcome to the comic trope. We're in a small room backstage at the Globe Theater. People are coming through here, acrobats, people dressed up as women because they weren't allowed to perform at that time. Some of those people are us. Two of us are dressed up like women and two of us aren't. We'll let you guess which ones. I feel charming, oh so charming. It's alarming how charming I feel and so pretty that I hardly can believe I'm real. We're gonna do three things today. We're gonna do a icebreaker. We are going to talk about a few comic books that we have been reading, and then we're gonna go into a review slash overview of 1602 by Neil Gaiman, and the artist was, anyone remember? Andy Kubert. Andy Kubert. Andy yes, Kubert. Before we get into all that stuff, I wanna ask each of you a question, so let's do icebreakers. Drug preferences, for comic book characters. Like like junkies? Look, drug is a drug is a drug. I went to school in California. I went through the D.A.R.E. program. And I learned there that all drugs were bad. And they also brought drugs in giant glass cases and like showed you each individual. Did you did that? I didn't think that North Carolina had much of an elementary school at all. Oh, wow. I just kind of put you at a... Stop. Right. I, I never did a dare program. I just remember the t-shirts. So I got a lot of weed. But they actually told you guys, don't do drugs or drugs or Well, they, what was weird is they brought Good. in drugs. And they were like, this is heroin. This is crack cocaine. I was like, this no, is marijuana. Those are horrible teeth. teeth. <laughs> and I just was impressed. And I learned a lot from that. I learned what different drugs look like. And it... Put me on the trajectory of doing drugs, I believe. Now, is this what the good stuff looks like, or is this shit? <laughs> is this that is loud, this, loud? Or is this <laughs> that quieter, loud? Is this the stickiest of the icky, or the ickiest of the All sticky? Right, <laughs> All right. Superman. Sequoia, what drug does Superman do, or what drug would Superman do? I like to imagine that he, like, crushes kryptonite. <laughs> Like grinds it up to a nice fine powder. Jesus. Maybe like mixes that with like a little. I mean, it has to be like I don't know. I don't know what color it could be. Like definitely not green. Maybe it's a little bit of a little red. That, that, like little, that purple kryptonite. That purple. That purple. I'm gonna go back. To your point. I actually believe the only way Superman could get high is if he laced it with kryptonite yeah. to weaken himself to then get high. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I totally agree. Whatever drug he's doing, it it's is laced with, with kryptonite. kryptonite. Yeah. So it's a little bit, of, a little bit of red, a little bit of green. Just a pocket full. Yeah. So what you're telling me is, is that uh, what was the uh, name of that group that Outcast was associated with that had that song called Kryptonite? Spin I'd doctors. be on that. It was not the Spin <laughs> Doctors. Dave, uh, Submariner. What drugs is he doing? Oh man, he's on that uh, that Singapore seaweed. The Singapore seaweed, <laughs> which is, a, I guess, a fancy name that I just made up for an Asian strand of marijuana. Some of that hydro, if you will. Wow, definitely on that hydro. No questions <laughs> asked. I mean, for 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 him, he doesn't really need. You know, he's. I don't think he's got a crazy immune system like Superman, so it's not like he needs the best, most knockout shit. I mean, he's probably he's a war veteran. So, you know, he fought World War II. I mean, fact of life about that guy. He probably just got high through the barrel of a gun like everybody did. Flash coffee. Done. 
<laughs> no. Espresso. I am not giving you the flash just Eight for times the sake espresso. of espresso. But I will give you a difficult one. Captain America. Coffee. Trick question. He would never do drugs because right. he teaches the kids not well, to. Well, he drinks coffee, coffee, doesn't he? Does he? Sure he does. Does. It's decaf. Every, every American they didn't have coffee decaf. too. They didn't have decaf. They didn't have no decaf. Yeah. No. They just had black coffee. And if you didn't it. like that, fuck you. And now we're saying no to drugs. Dare in your kid's school too by visiting Country Style Donuts. Purchase the Dare Bear and show you care. Proceeds go to Dare in your community. So let's talk quickly about comics. Comic. Who would like to talk about um, some comics that they've been reading recently other than 1602? I read 1602 New World. <laughs> oh, okay. Did you read that first by mistake, or did you no, read it afterwards no. because you were interested? I, I read uh, 1602, and I liked it so much that I read, like, almost all of the 1602 stuff. Who was 1602 New World by? Uh, Greg Pat, who I like a lot. Oh, well, I like Greg Pat. Uh, was it a... Uh, so Hulk must have been in it then. He was. Oh, okay. Great Hulk. Who was he fighting in it? What was the deal? Lord Iron. I would assume that that's Iron Man. It's a giant steampunk Iron Man with a... Spanish conquistador helmet on, and his technology is so much farther ahead than any of the 1602 folk that he just seems totally crazy. And there's also, you, you actually see Peter Parker become... Which they tease a lot. A Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Uh, who else is in that? Uh, Having, having never read anything past 1602, it. which I've read multiple times, but it been interested to read New World because um, it's about the fracture, I guess, in, in time that's created whenever that whole thing goes down, which we'll talk about later. But uh, I'm assuming Doom is in it with Mask now? Yes. <clears throat> okay. He's no longer Otto the Handsome. <laughs> Definitely not. Otto the fucked up. <laughs> but anyway, that's what I've been reading. A little weird to talk about it before we talk about 1602. Right. Well, I mean, it <clears throat> it's not. I don't. I don't like it as much, but it's pretty good. It's five issues. Well, if you like six and two, you'll probably enjoy it. Right. So I've been reading Fight Club Two, uh, written by Chuck Palahniuk, author of the original Fight Club uh, novel, and uh, with art by Cameron Stewart and covers by David Mack. Uh, what I was great, about to ask how you pronounce his last name. I've never heard anyone say it. Chuck Palahniuk. Um, okay. So uh, my girlfriend recently went to a book signing for him uh, for Fight Club Two. She met him, took some photos with him, said he was pretty much one of the nicest celebrities she's ever met. And uh, she likes to go book signing, so I guess she's met a lot of authors uh, over the years. Uh, but uh, said he was fantastic. Um, he got into a fight pose with her and kind of choked her out a little bit, which I guess was a nice little tie-in for two of his books. You heard um, it here. That's... Chuck Palina chokes lady at thing. Well, that was his thing. He was asking, do you want to do like an on-guard fight pose, or you want me to choke you? Like That was how he was having people pose for pictures. Um, he seems like a really great guy, but he wrote uh, this this graphic novel that came out to an issue for Dark Horse, which takes place about 10 years after the events in the original Fight Club. Um, it's it's really, really good so far. Chuck Balamuk is one of my favorite authors, and uh, it, I guess this is probably his first real graphic novel. I, I kind of hope that he continues to do more stuff in the format. He's going to be doing more comic stuff. Yeah, for it, it's, it's really good, but um, it's about his relationship problems or the, the main character's relationship problems with um, 
uh, Marla, because they've, they've gotten married now, and uh, as a result of his stress, uh, Tyler begins to reappear and remanifest. Is this a sequel to the book or the movie? Both. Well, I mean, the movie is the book. Wait, isn't the ending in the book that it was a dream, and the ending in the movie was that it was real? No, it's, no, it's, it's real. real both yeah. of Project I Mayhem. thought that the ending was different in the book than the movie. I think that they differ slightly. In, and <laughs> I, I, they definitely in slightly different, but the... I'm well, saying that in the book he goes to a mental hospital. Okay. But he's married in this, and uh, Project Mayhem was a thing, and so in this new world, uh, he and Marla are struggling to make their relationship work. I, of all of the rebirth stuff, I latched on to Batman Detective, um, and I've read the four issues of that. So it's issue 937 was the most recent one I read. I think there's a new one just came out that I haven't read yet. And it is by, uh, let's see, Fernandez and Tinian IV. I won't go too much into it, but what I really like about this is that the premise is that Batman has been so successful as a single killing machine that the government is creating Batman cloned warriors to go out and kill terrorists. Into that. And uh, I spoke about this a few episodes ago uh, when I read the, f- the first Rebirth comic. And uh, Batman assembled a team that was with a bunch of Robins and a bunch of uh, other um, characters from the universe. And they have this team along with... Um, Oh man, what's the guy that changes his face? Clayface. Clayface. And Clayface is so awesome in this book as like a kind of a good guy. It just seeing him fight alongside everyone, um, really, really good opportunities for cool art. I, I don't want to say too much about it because it's a good enough book that I think everyone should read it and see how it got to that point. But that point being seeing where it got to the cloned Batman and, and why everything's happening, who was behind it and everything like that. But I, I recommend it to any comic book reader because it's so cool. Like, let me ask you. So if someone was going to read like three or four rebirth titles, you've read most of the new ones, right? I'm getting there. Okay. What would you, what would you say are the best ones right now? Uh, I really like the new Superman. Okay. I think it's mm-hmm. neat and, and strange. So that's not action comics. That's yeah, Superman. yeah. The the uh, the Chinese Superman. Oh right, right. Okay. Um, the reason I like it, and I was on the fence last time. I think last podcast, but I reread it, and I like the the anti hero kind of thing that's coming out of it. Like he's not a he he's not a great kid. So there's a lot of there's a lot of growth that can happen with that character. I think that that's really cool. Does that connect in at all to the rest of the... I think it's going to, but it's not now. Okay. Um, And then I really like uh, this comic book, Batman Detective, um, because it it, it seems... I mean, it's Batman. You can jump in anytime you want, but the the side characters in this are all really strong. So are there two Batman comics right now? Okay. What's the other one called? It's Batman and Detective. Yeah. And then I'm looking. I'm really looking forward to the third Batman that's coming out this week. Last All week, All Star Batman. All Star Batman. Yeah. So I'll just read all the Batman. <laughs> um, yeah. The, and believe it or not, I read the second Aquaman and has gotten a lot better. Um, so I would actually recommend Aquaman, Batman Detective, 
and uh, the new Superman. For just someone who doesn't read DC and coming in, those are the three that have kind of hooked me. Something I want to talk about, I, I missed the last few uh, episodes that y'all recorded, but uh, something I read about a month ago I absolutely loved was Malar World, the Malar World 2016 annual. And Mark Malar launched it as sort of a talent search for up-and-coming writers and artists. But basically, he, he tasked, like, you know, just amateurs out there in the world. And sort of a talent showcase for these folks, but he tasked them with doing stories based, like, short stories based on properties he had created. So you have these stories based on, like, Chrononauts, Starlight, um, Kick-Ass, and uh, a couple other things he wrote. But the thing I love the most about it, my favorite Mark Millar book so far, if not ever, is uh, Chosen. Oh, yes. I absolutely love And there's a follow-up story in there that I, I thought was absolutely fantastic because I've been waiting over a decade for that guy to do the he, sequel to that. And book. he said he was going to. I mean, that was part of the original plan was to do the, the pre-version of The Chosen and yeah. then what came after. Exactly. Uh, and we definitely won't spoil anything about what that looks like, but, um, but yeah, but that's so, an awesome book. <laughs> that was a really enjoyable read. Um, what else? Uh, I just recently picked up issue one of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips' new book from Image Comics, uh, Killer Be Killed. And that's absolutely fantastic. But the whole premise behind it is sort of an examination. And, 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 and you know, like, Brubaker, he likes to explore different genres uh, or subgenres. But basically the whole premise of this book is uh, this kind of milquetoast-like young man who's forced to become a vigilante. He has to kill bad people. Uh, for reasons I won't go into, you have to read it, but, but it's sort of Brubaker examining examining the whole vigilante uh, genre of comics and films. And uh, as always, with his single-issue comics, he has you know an essay in the back, and I think for the first issue, they're examining the Death Wish series uh, that starred Charles Bronson. But really, really good book, very gritty and pulpy, which, you know, I've come to expect from those guys, but I highly recommend Killer Be Killed. That sounds like something I'd really like to read. I was watching the season two of Daredevil, and, you know, he spends a lot of time arguing with the Punisher, and I like that whole debate that's, you know, a lot of times in comics about whether what some of these guys do is right or not, because I feel like in society now we're all Punishers. So let's do a review. Let's talk a little bit about 1602, written by Neil Gaiman and art by um, Andy Kubert. Andy Kubert. And then... Colors by Richard Eisenhoff. Yep. Covers by Scott McCune. Mm-hmm. And I... No, they didn't ink it. Yeah, so... This it. was recommended to us by Dave, Smiling Dave. Hashtag Smiling Dave. And bef- what, I wanna do, what I wanna do with this comic is I want to talk a little bit about the characters from the Marvel Universe that are in this comic. Because this is a rebranding of Marvel in the Elizabethan area. Yeah, I think that's the best place to start, is to kind of set us up for where we are. Well, I do want to talk about briefly one interesting story about this book and how it came about, because this is some of Neil Gaiman's first work ever 
for uh, Marvel Comics, which mm-hmm. primarily he'd always been associated with Vertigo over at DC. Him and Joe are real close, right? Yeah, him and Joe are pretty tight. And basically, you know, he expressed an interest in possibly doing something for uh, Marvel one day. And he came to him with the idea for 60, 1602. But basically, it came about because at this time, 2001, 2002, um, uh, well, when he yeah, was right, working right. Gotcha. on Okay, I was going to say. Uh, Gaiman was uh, 2003 is when it came out but basically Gaiman was in the middle of his lawsuit against Todd McFarlane which is why we have Angel or Angela in Marvel Comics exactly exactly. (laughs) so basically the whole idea was that and this is a long story but Todd McFarlane acquired the rights to the Miracle Man comic at one point and Neil Gaiman brought it up that hey look I worked on worked for you on Spawn and I created the character Angela and you've created a bunch of like she's appeared in your cartoon series she's been in the movie you've got all these toys and spin-off comics you know we never did a work for hire agreement I'm willing to just forgo all that and keep the character technically I own Miracle Man because the way Alan Moore set it up was that when he and um, Laura, I can't, was it Richard? Oh God, I can't remember who. Steve, no, not Steve. Said he and the original artist of the Miracle Man right. series. And when they finished their run, they turned the rights to the character over to Gaiman and Buckingham. So technically, they own like the rights to the character. But McFarlane's like, no, I bought the company that originally owned this property. I own it. Screw you. I also own Angela. Basically, there was just this big legal fight, and lasted for years, years. And Damon needed money to kind of battle that. Yeah, battle that. And Quesada was like, "Hey, come do some work for us. You know, they'll get some money in your pocket so you can uh, fight your legal battles." But they came up with the agreement that, "Hey, if you win this and you get the rights back to um, to Miracle Man." We want to republish that stuff and let you finish the series that got canceled back in the what early nineties, early nineties, yeah, and and whatnot. So that's why there's been you know <clears throat> f- uh, more new gaming books as as a result. You know, this was like the first thing he did, but and that's why we have Angela fitting poorly into the Marvel universe. Yeah, Anywhere exactly. we can shove her, because he wound up winning the battle. Yeah. Hey, let's put her in space. Okay, well, what if she's Thor's sister? Okay, what if she? It is over hell. Okay, well, what if, what if we put her back in 1602? The character doesn't fit at all, but no. a lot of it is just a big F you to Todd McFarlane, and, you know, so it's kind of nice. What a dick. Yeah, you know, but... Good Spider-Man stuff. I don't yeah, care. Yeah, Shitty Spawn stuff. <laughs> I like Spawn, so fuck you. <laughs> um, so let's get into 1602. <clears throat> Dave, since this is your choice, could you kind of give us could you give us a five to ten minute synopsis of this story? Well, and I don't want to go too far too quickly and kind of give away why all this is happening, but essentially there are strange events happening uh, in Europe in 1602 that have brought about an early rise of Marvel's pantheon of superheroes. Uh, whereas there are conditions on this earth where the the heroes need to kind of 
um, come into being to help solve the crisis that's at hand. So what you see is is uh, a, a sort of a retelling of the origin stories of a lot of Marvel's most famous heroes and villains, um, set against the backdrop of the increasing uh, duress of political or of the politics of the era across um, Western Europe. Um, it's it's fantastic uh, in that it really does pay. Uh, you know, homage to a lot of the, the characters' origins, um, but putting, like, not just shoehorning them into the time period, but looking at if, you know, Nick Fury were to have lived in the year 1602, um, what would he be? And in this instance, you know, we, we see him painted as a an agent of the crown, essentially, a spy master, which is exactly what he would be if, if that was the case. Uh, but a lot of the motivations which we talked about with some of the Elseworlds stuff when we were talking about Red Sun, is that these characters, very much like the Elseworld DC characters, you know, still keep a lot of their same motivations. Um, I'd say with the potential exception of some of the, the, the very brief stuff that we get of Black Widow in here, I would say that I pretty much am in agreement with, uh, with the way they, they portray all of them. That's, and that's as basic as you need to be. Like, you don't really need to go too much further into that because the book itself then begins to unfold and give you reasons why everything is happening. Yeah, so let's name off um, some of the characters and who, they, who their 1602 counterparts are and, and the small differences that we see. You have uh, Sir Nicholas Fury. Right, which is great. I mean, he, he probably fits in better than almost any character in the book. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. And, he and Doom, honestly. Um, uh, you have... Uh, Peter Parquois. Peter Parquois. <laughs> a, an orphaned boy who was taken from his aunt and uncle to basically work in the employ of Sir Nicholas Fury and to learn a trade. He's basically like Johnny Tremaine. Except he doesn't melt his fingers together. <laughs> He's an apprentice of uh, of the spy master. Um, so, Doctor, um, wait, sorry. Let's go back to Doom since you mentioned him. He is called Otto Van Hansen or something. What is uh, Otto, Van Hansen. Otto Van Doom, the Hansen. Von Doom, Otto Von Doom, not Victor, also known as Otto the Handsome. Which, whenever I read his dialogue in this book, I always read it. I always heard Jean Claude Van Damme's yeah voice in my head, and I can't explain why. I. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to slightly disagree with Dave and say that I don't think that his portrayal as Doom is very similar to our Doom. The only similarities that I really see is that he wants to take over the world. He's not, he doesn't really care about science like he cares about science in the Marvel Universe. He's not a, he's not a lover of knowledge like he is. Instead, he is a lover of, um, Wealth and in power. power. Yeah, he's very vain and obnoxious. And maybe that's what, what he is before he loses his face. Yeah. You know, maybe that's the doom before he's the metal-faced doom. <laughs> well, and there, but there are some allusions, right? Like uh, to some of the stuff that probably came before. Um, they talk about his father and his breeding pits, essentially, because he's got all these weird kind of things. Leather wings. He's got like Saurons basically that fly around his castle. He's got um, like little flea men basically that do all his bidding. They're like goblins or halflings almost. Kind of like his doom bots. His doom bots. And yeah, he's got uh, he's got vulture men, which basically yeah. are just clones of the super this, this vulture. Pre Vader, pre Darth Vader, Von Doom. Yeah. yeah. 
can we all, can I also mention about Peter Parkour or whatever? Parkour. 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 I love throughout this whole um, book that you expect him to get bitten by the spider and it doesn't happen till like the very last scene. But the whole time you're like, oh, it's going to happen now. He's going to be sp-. Nope. <laughs> I thought that that was a, a really, a really neat trick that Neil Gaiman did by because you expect him to be yeah. Peter Parker the whole time and he, he expects you to be Spider-Man he never is and I I really that's the thing that I enjoy the most about this uh, comic book actually and then um, we're also given um, Matthew Murdoch he was my favorite part of this as a minstrel yeah instead of as a lawyer uh, that was pretty neat. It was, yeah. Um, the blind balladeer. He was a blind balladeer. And, and all the songs were about the Fantastic, the Fantastic Four. Four. And how the Fantastic Four became the Fantastic Four. So we got their background without even meeting them. Because we assume them to be dead. Well, we don't just... They, they flat out say that they've been dead missing for a number of years. Um, and before we go too much further, there's another prime character that's probably secondary only to Fury in this. Stephen Strange. Um, as basically the court's physician, so to speak, who's been giving, uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth, I guess, her unnatural long years uh, through, his remedies, and, you know, through his, his remedies and medicines. And he's, he's still definitely, I think he poses as an alchemist or as, like, you know, a, a physician. A natural philosopher of good repute. Yes, 100%. <laughs> Verily. Uh, but he's definitely still as much a, a you know a master of mysticism as he is in the in the modern books. Uh, but he's fantastic. He might be my favorite character in this. And then we're introduced to an Indian named Rojas, pronounced Rogers. Rojas. <laughs> Rojas. Rojas. That we. Don't give that away just yet, because that's sort of the big secret. All right, I won't give it away. Oh, really? Yeah. That was, well, okay. See, I have to put this in context when the book came out. You know, it was, it was the whole thing was trying to figure out what was the deal. Oh, because that's the thing, and he talk about this earlier. But that's the problem with kind of reading stuff like this. <laughs> that's kind of anachronistic. Is that you're always trying to match up the analogs? And I remember at the time, everyone kind of assuming that uh, Rojas is Kazar because mm-hmm. you know they're both the kind of primitive characters, the the, the Tarzan analogs, <laughs> I guess, for lack of a better term. I guess because I don't know who that other character is. I just assumed it was... Kazar is Marvel's version of Tarzan, basically. Which they kind of make reference to. So when this was coming out, people didn't just go, oh, that's... Well, there was a bit of a mystery about it. I mean, there's a lot of hype around this because, like I said, it was Neil Gaiman's first work for Marvel and everyone's just kind of under the assumption that, oh my God, this is going to be like Sandman but for Marvel and, you know, I, I guess I can say this after the fact, but... A lot of people, you know, this wasn't a, this did not do gangbusters like everyone thought it did. Clea Strange, so she, you know, as as Strange's wife and assistant, um, and we, we continuously get the flashes of where she actually comes from, but not outright being told. Um, the other really, really big thing that happens in this, and this is kind of, with the exception of Doom, we've kind of just been dealing primarily with England. But they also, you know, play in the Spanish Inquisition into the story, and uh, that's where we get the story of what would essentially be the mutants, which are referred to as the witch breed here. Uh, which that's make pretty them cool. Very I, cool. Which make them natural enemies of the Inquisition. I feel like the whole story revolved around Neil Gaiman being like, "I've always thought about. I've always thought the mutants were kind of like witches, heretics." 
Her- heretics. Spanish witches. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> but you've got, uh, on one side, you've got the Grand Inquisitor, which, you know, even as it was being released, we all kind of knew who he was, but even without seeing his powers, based upon who his assistants are. Yeah. Uh, who are essentially Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. Um, so Petrus or Petros? Petros. Petros. Uh, Peter. Who, Peter. Who the King of Scotland re- repeatedly flirts with. Um, <laughs> you're a clever boy. You're, you're a clever, clever boy. You're a clever, pretty, pretty boy. Pretty boy. One of my favorite things. His sister wants. Yeah, he was he was very gay. Yeah, yeah. It's but kind of, I mean, just the, like the Scottish stuff. Oh yeah, the of, Scottish like umlauts or Stay for a bit, pretty boy. <laughs> hey. Watch her stay for a bit, you quick bastard. <laughs> you queer bastard. Quick. Not, oh, 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 okay, sorry. You queer sorry. bastard. <laughs> you quick bastard. I'm a bugger ya. <laughs> That's the saying, right? Yeah, yes. right. I mean, it would be. You should know. I'm from Canada. <laughs> my mom used to get so angry when I said bugger as a kid. She just smacked my face and then apologized quickly right afterwards because she's Canadian. Um, but uh, we see Carlos Javier, uh, who is also in England, um, who I'm Spanish by way of Cairo. <laughs> this is what I thought of immediately reading that. It was Highlander. Uh, but uh, he's he's got what would essentially be the original. I love that it was the original five X Men. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I I, I love where they're they're introduced. The first one we see is Angel, who is basically about to be burned at the stake at the hands of the Great For brevity. And to kind of get the highs and the lows of this comic book, why don't you spoil it for us, Dave? Yeah, everyone dies, uh, which they have to in order to live on. No, I'm totally kidding. Um, what, we, what we find is, again, a continent in turmoil. There is strange weather happening, as we find out actually all over the world. Uh, there are reports coming from, from other continents, especially the New World, which is something that also plays heavily into this. And during this time, Elizabeth's health is failing her. Um, we see that there are mentions of doom and sort of the, the machinations of, of his mind and, and his isolation off in his, his country of uh, Latveria. We see that the Inquisition is going on in Spain. Uh, we see a little bit of the connection with the uh, Vatican, with, with that storyline, and Virginia Dare, who is being accompanied by her protector, the Native American Rojas, as they come across the ocean to basically ask for help for the um, the original colony, right, to sure. from the queen, uh, and all of this happening kind of simultaneously. Stephen Strange is getting a lot of visions about what this potentially could mean, and he even proposes that with what a lot of people are, are the the more simple people of the world, the peasants are kind of you know speaking about is that they all interpret these as signs that the world is ending. To which Stephen Strange is actually very much in agreement. It's not just a sky is falling kind of scenario. There is something very, very odd at work that is very potentially about to bring about, um, you know, the the end of all existence as we know it. Well, he doesn't really know that at the time, but right. essentially at that point, just the end of our world, uh, and that's kind of where everything you know takes off from there. Uh, and that's that's the main plot. Our two subplots are uh, we have the Daredevil and. Um, what's yeah, her name? The Scarlet Witch. The Scarlet Witch. Natasha, as, as she's referred to. They're, uh, that's not the Scarlet Witch, is it? Not Scarlet it's, Witch, I'm sorry, Black Widow. It's Black Widow, yeah. Oh, yeah. Black Widow. I was thinking about fine broads from Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> Woo! 
So they're going to get a weapon that everyone's after. A Templar. The Templars. Yeah. And Coming straight out of Jerusalem. The one thing that changes everything is when we're introduced to Uatu, the Watcher, about more more than halfway through the volume. And that's when kind of the fourth wall's broken? Not really. But like I look at it as this is now being fit into the entire universe at this point, right? Mm-hmm. We're told that, um, yes, the Watcher says this this world is going to be destroyed in there's, half a year. There's some type of temporal disturbance that is not only affecting the actual world of the Marvel 1602, but could very well lead to the end of all existence. So... Basically, the whole multiverse is at stake. Mm. And Watu tasks Stephen Strange. He gives him this knowledge and basically tasks him with trying to figure out. This is something called the Forerunner. You don't know what it is, but whatever it is, it has to be returned to where it came from, either another dimension or another time. And he's tasked Stephen Strange with finding this and returning the forerunner, otherwise it would mean the destruction of all existence. But he's not allowed to say what he's uh, what has been revealed to him or mentioned it to you know any he's, other characters. And, and this comes he about that act he can't act on it. He basically gets sworn into the Watchers. Yeah, <laughs> essentially, yeah. He, he's given and and even though you know he's not allowed to act on it, this is still a perverse act by Watchers people as a Watcher. Is that this they've they've at this point broken one of the tenets of what they are supposed to not do, uh, but they see it as a necessary evil because there would be nothing to watch if all were to end. Right. So they 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 make this compromise with their their values essentially and their um their their like I said their tenets to be able to pass this information to Stephen Strange. And it's a really great scene in the book with Stephen's uh you know metaphysical form on the moon walking alongside Watu and Watu using these really complex uh physical and metaphysical uh and quantum physical like uh, ideas of science and in nature. Uh, to which Stephen is, I'm sorry, I don't follow that. Because again, it's 1602. <laughs> he, he says, these are just words. Yeah. I, see, I didn't like that scene. <laughs> I didn't like that scene because I didn't, it, it didn't make sense to me why it was in there. Like, why couldn't the Watcher know since he's the Watcher and just spell everything out? Because he's not allowed to. I mean, that's sort of the Watcher's job. He's the narrator. Well, he's already breaking his job. Well, yeah, for the sake of the greater, but at the same time, he's like, ah, I'll fill you in on this, but... No, it's so not it's even... The, he's bending the rules, not so much breaking. It's not right. even like that. He's explaining to him at a high, like, 21st century level, but and the, then he dumbs it down, and then he dumbs it down again. That's what I don't understand. Like, I, I understand where you're coming from, yeah. but he's... he. It's like, he's the watcher of 1602 at this point. He should know how to speak. Like 1602. Well, he, but he doesn't interact with these people, so he's yeah. not constantly... I mean, but he, he probably doesn't interact with people in the 21st century, and he's speaking 21st century. Do you see the pl- the hole that I am pointing out? Like, well, it's, it's, I think he speaks like that even now. He's yeah. dead, so he doesn't speak He's that a very way. literal watcher, you know, in terms of you ask him a question in the correct manner, and he'll give you a very matter-of-fact answer. But... You know, he's speaking in actualities, whereas, you know, the people of, I mean, the people of 1602 still believe in alchemy. And it's like, no, sorry to tell you, man, that crap, that doesn't actually work. But, you know, they can't even conceive of atoms. 
in this book. I well, mean, except for that Reed, Reed has, has, yeah, and that, that comes up as well. Yeah, which like, is really, I, really cool. I guess that's the thing is, you know, the general knowledge of the public at that time versus the more learned man. Mm-hmm. You know, Reed, or Richard Reed is supposed to be the most brilliant person, but yet his knowledge of science only pertains up until like, uh, what, Newtonian physics, and that's mm-hmm. about as far as yeah. it goes. But he's trying to grasp at things that, you know, later Einstein and hell, uh, well, not Carl Sagan, but um, they're trying to, uh, Brian Greene, right. you know, some of our, our uh, very learned uh, physics or physicists of this time, you know, he's grasping at those ideas that they later clarify in more modern, a more modern context. So, the watcher is in possession of that knowledge, but and much, much more. And yes. it's difficult for him to convey that to someone in this time period, right? Which I think makes sense. If he hadn't done that, if Stephen had just picked up on everything he was saying, I was like, how, "What? How would you know that? Yeah, that's insane." Because I mean, some of those are things that are even theoretical by our standards now. I still thought there was, I still thought it was kind of busy, personally. Uh, but so the catalyst is that the queen is killed by uh, Otto. By, yeah, by Doom. Otto von Doom. With a really cool like little music box that spits out poison, essentially. That's, yeah, it was neat. Yeah. And then, so at that point, we know that James is going to become uh, king. And the first thing that James does is blame the X-Men. Persecute the... the and he tells Fury to go after them. And uh, long story short... The X Men are kind of like uh, the X Men want to like fight and leave and whatever, and then Xavier is like or Javier in this Javier Javier Carlos Javier. He basically says like we're we're gonna we're gonna trust Fury on this one and go with him. Yeah, they decide to turn themselves in peacefully. Fury's trying to devise a plan to avoid any kind of conflict or blood because he knows on one hand the X Men or. Uh, Javier's men I don't think they call him next but Javier's men or his students would mop up his soldiers oh, but then yeah. at the same time his soldiers would you know pulverize Javier's men so he too was trying to work the path of, um, of that would allow the less amount, least amount of bloodshed but then Fury doesn't really have a plan so um, Fury and Strange and um Xavier are in the room, politicking, and I think that Strange says the Fantastic Four is still alive and they're in uh, Von Doom's basement. Yeah, well, Strange comes to Fury as like a visage, essentially, in the mist as he's enjoying sausage first thing, sausage and coffee in the morning. Was that what they were doing? Cheese, bread. Cheese and bread and and, and beer, right. First thing in the morning. Um, And that's also when we get introduced to Dum Dum, which is Dumb great. Dugan, yeah. yeah, Dum Dum Dugan shows up there as Fury's right hand man, which again is like one of those like really he's not in it a lot, but the fact that he was thrown in there is yeah. is really awesome. Uh, the the story then progresses to you know where we're at with with Peter kind of being sent ahead to to the the school, um, and you're right, Fury doesn't have a plan past that, but it's the knowledge that he gets from Strange, you know, in that visage. There's so much more at play than you understand here. Choose your next move very, very carefully. Right. And I mean, I like with this story that there are a lot of fronts that they're having to battle on. I mean, there's the whole thing with them trying to intercept the whatever the treasure is that's coming out of Jerusalem. There's having to deal with uh, King James. King James. And not uh, raise any of his suspicions. But then there's 
the wild card player being Otto Von Doom. I, 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 it's a very busy book. I, I, I mean, we talked about it briefly, but it reads very much like a um, a court drama mm. from that from that era. And I kind of like that. There's a lot of intrigue and stuff, and I I enjoy it. it kept me busy the whole time. Constantly thinking, like I, even when I read this for the first time, and even now, because I, you know, it's been so long, my my brain's, you know, a little uh, cobwebby on some of these these finer points. But like, how is this connected to this? You know, what, trying to think ahead and figure out what comes next, right? What's the next piece of intrigue that this ties into? Or when you learn about the weapon, you it's you know, like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. As a MacGuffin, you're just sitting there the entire time thinking, like, well, what's this weapon? I know it ties into some sort of superhero some way. Yeah. So let's continue on with the summary to the weapons point is that they all jump in a boat and they fly across the sky. The X-Men um, and Fury. That's about it in there, right? X-Men and Fury and then some of his guys, maybe? Dugan. Dugan's, Dugan's with them because he's, they've basically been branded traitors to the crown. Uh, Stephen Strange has been killed at this point, beheaded by James. Yeah. Um, and now that he has lost the mortal coil... He is able to reveal his information to his wife because, as he lived, he may spake no word of it to any living soul. But as a as a dead man, his head basically then talks to to Cleo. And also, let's not forget to point out that also in that ship is going to be Rogers, Rogers, and uh, Virginia Dare, who we haven't mentioned yet, who is um, the only truly American and only singular character that is not either from history or from the Marvel Universe. She's the only one in this whole um, graphic novel or whatever you want to call it that isn't from, um, is created wholly for this book. I mean, James and, you know, Queen... uh, Well, they're historic figures. Right, right, right. They're they're changed historic figures and all these other Marvel characters are changed for this history, so... Um, but she's she's under lock and key by James at this point. She and Rosa's both are under lock and really? key. Really? They're yeah. not in the uh, flying? Oh, yeah, okay. they're, they're being held captive, essentially. That's that, that's he, the, the savage, as he calls Rojas, and, um, you know, uh, Virginia are being kind of kept as curiosities. It doesn't sound like she's going to be allowed to return to the New World, which presents an issue going forward. Um, and, you know... Their association with Strange and his interest in them certainly, you know, have piqued James's interest in this to not want to let them out of his sight. And we haven't mentioned it. She's over here because she wants um, for the Roanoke Colony. Aid. She yeah. wants aid or backup. Yeah. So this uh, this flying ship, which Neil Gaiman seems to love, fucking flying ships. Well, they they what do they call it the uh, Eagle Shadow, which I kind of took as a reference to, to the Blackbirds. Blackbird, yeah, hundred yeah, percent, which was pretty a pretty clever nod and such. Being being lifted uh, into the air by Jean Grey, who we're introduced to, of course, as a, a, a girl masquerading as a boy, as to avoid John Grey. John Grey, which I, I have to say, with the exception maybe being Queen Elizabeth and Virginia Dare, like the women in this book don't really have that many good moments. I mean, you know, Jean Just sort of a mirror. <laughs> Huh? Invisible Woman is a bedchamber decoration. Yeah, and she's just constantly knitting. Or there's that one scene when they get to the colony, she's just a pair of knitting needles in whatever the hell it is she's making. So, Black Widow's kind of a hoe. Very much so. Very much so. They attack Otto Von Doom. 
uh, where Black Widow is, and also uh, Matt Doom. Murdock and and, uh, the and the old man, the Templar. Don't all. Don't all. Yeah. yeah. Because Doom got the uh, weapon that everyone was after. Thanks yeah. to Black Widow's betrayal of uh, the devil who dares. Yes. And then um, there's a fight, and Doom loses. Pretty dope fight. Yeah, it's a good fight. I, I think the old old shit moment for me in that book was when Doom tries to activate the um, the, the orb, yeah. the, which we don't know what the hell it is. It like Dave said, it's a MacGuffin, but yeah. it blows up in his face, and uh, you know he become well. He's on his way to becoming the Doom we all know and fear. But the old shit moment for me was when Donald, uh, the old man, you know, reveals that oh. Well, that thing wasn't the treasure. That wasn't the secret that the Templars were protecting. The Templar, the, the secret is still in my cart, and it's this stick. And that moment, it just struck me like, oh, shit, I know what they're mm-hmm. going for. And it turns out that the old man, when he strikes his stick on the ground, becomes Thor. And I thought that was awesome because I was not sure how they were going to work that character into the story at all. And it's great. I mean, he's he's fantastic too. Yeah, and it's it, it's revealed that uh, base messengers from Asgard gave this treasure to the Templars eight hundred years ago, and they've been watching after it ever since. And it's it's great too because to go back to your point about what they do know about, it's God, right? Yeah. It's it's the their deity. It's it's what they believe in. And this man is a Templar is very much devoted to his religion and his God and knowing what this is and where it originates from he asks for Jesu to have mercy on his soul as he strikes it upon the ground uh, but being in a position where it's either everyone dies or he uses this weapon to help pull them out of that situation and uh, watching Thor go to town on Doom's forces is pretty awesome pretty awesome <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it's the big climactic battle in this entire story and after the battle they take the ship back to the UK right uh, no, New World. Sail westward. How does Rohan get on the? He takes another ship. Yeah. They sneak out. Clea knows that she needs to somehow. Like Stephen reveals to her, there are three ships that end up all bound for the same place. The Inquisitor gets overthrown by the uh, the Vatican. Toad, who is a, I don't really know how Toad got into the Vatican as a. Yeah. <laughs> that that part kind of eluded me, but uh, the 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 Vatican sends men. Uh, after Toad betrays uh, Magneto, who we find out is the Grand Inquisitor. Uh, in, was his name Enrique? Enrique? Enrique, Enrique. instead of Eric. Yeah. Um, but uh, we find out he was also a Jew yeah. who basically was taken in uh, by Catholics, and that's kind of how his whole thing came to be. So he's got this huge mistrust of the church to begin with because he was taken away from his family, very similarly to how Eric would have been you know, separated from his family during the Holocaust, and, and we find out that the whole his whole his role in the Inquisition was that he was actually taking in the mutants and hiding them, the ones that could pass as human, to, to only, be his army. Yeah, but burning the ones that couldn't pass, like the ones with like deformities or to deflect suspicion. Yeah, and that's how we you know meet Angel at the beginning of the story because he has those huge huge wings and he can't pass. They need to escape. They get on a ship. Um, Clea takes Rojas and uh, Virginia, who's also a shapeshifter, like she is kind of in our mythology of her turning into a deer. Uh, but she, we see her several times shapeshift under great duress. Uh, first was like Griffin, we see yeah. her. 
Um, which with a really great scene, this is earlier in the book, where Rojas takes that platter and throws it straight into the sky to kill that vulture man, yes. which is fantastic. Uh, but we they get on a ship to just escape England. Uh, the Inquisition, or the former Inquisition, gets on a ship to just escape Spain and the persecution of the Catholic Church. And all the ships are bound for the New World because Thor is actively guiding the winds and currents. So the other two ships, like there's a very specific purpose that Thor is guiding the one ship to, but the the supernatural phenomenon of the, the temporal disturbance and Thor's, you know, uh, Influence on the weather itself basically mean the other two ships cannot sail out of the their trajectory towards the new world, and we get and a collision course. And it's sort of a metaphor, I guess, you know, for people escaping to the new world mm-hmm. because you know you have the one group trying to escape uh, King James and his uh, his rule, and then you have another group trying to escape the uh, Inquisition the and the Catholic Church. So. Well, it's the same thing that the Roanoke colony did. Mm-hmm. They were the colony that said he's not going to come to war over here. We're we're independent. Yeah. So I mean that it's exactly what happened. So we're in the new world. Um, we find out that Rogers is actually Captain America. Rojas is Rogers. Yeah. And he's not just an illusion to the character Captain America. He is legitimately Captain America. And this is what made me dislike the book. <laughs> um, the trying to tie it in so strongly with the Marvel universe wasn't needed, and I didn't I didn't care for it. I've kind of I really enjoyed the book until about right after the main fight um, with Otto von Doom, and then as soon as that kind of, as soon as the New World stuff kind of happened and, and loosely trying to tie it in to the six one six universe, it totally lost me. It just felt not needed and kind of ridiculous in a bad way for me, but. He needs to get back to his time so that this world doesn't get destroyed. The place where um, Virginia Dare got her powers or made her into whatever that she is, right, is... Uh, is the rift he came through. Is the rift that he came through. He doesn't want to go back because he wants to save... Uh, he, wants to be, he wants to be there from the very beginning and, and make America great again. But... Um, <laughs> Which at the time seemed really noble and just now it's has a, a whole other context. Uh, but and he, uh, he he goes back because um, who shoots him? Fury does, right? Fury knocks him unconscious. Yeah. Basically, yeah, he doesn't want to go. He wants to stay. But Fury's like, you're the anomaly that the Watcher spoke of and you have to return to your time because if you don't, then there, whatever it is you're trying to protect won't even exist. So if you really want to save it, you got to get your ass back through that portal. Yeah. So they get him and throw him through the part portal. The one thing that was weird to me was like, Virginia Dare is like a dog at this point. Well, she's a shapeshifter. She's a shape, right? She's a dog. Right. She has no problem with Rogers going back. There's no scene that's like, oh no, why are you leaving? It's just like, she he's gone. <laughs> and she's like, oh, Peter Parker, hold my hand. Let's walk up the sublight. Well, yeah, I mean, this... He's been her protector since Since she was was a kid, and like, there's no scene that's like at all. Like most of all, Scarecrow, you were looking for. Instead, it's like, oh, all we have to do is kill the Indian. Fuck, get rid of him. Let's go. Like (laughs) how he passed for an Indian is beyond me. Well, Native American. Yeah, Yeah, I mean. (laughs) So there's a lot of uh, overall. 
it was really neat for me to see the characters in in this world. Uh, what lost me was t- trying to tie it into the six one six. It should have just been for me. It should have just been a story on its own, set in sixteen oh two, set in sixteen oh two with a with a good plot, and it had a good plot at first. But then for me, it all unraveled when they tried to throw. Uh, American uh, throw Captain America our Captain America back there and like that doesn't happen in continuity so why would you try to do it well it's a it's a metaphor I mean for basically I mean take consideration when Gaiman wrote this was after September 11th and this was him trying to tell a story about American ideologies and not just you know how we how this country is viewed by the rest of the world or how he views it but also how that is related through our our superhero stories. And Captain America literally is the embodiment. And, you know, like I said, by the time this book came out in 2003, I mean, we were about to go to war with uh, Iraq and... Already fighting Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, and... You we know, had the Patriot Act passed. It's, yeah. And basically there were a lot of things. that The course was starting to be set for America to potentially go wrong. So, and and because and, and, that comes out of the story of how Captain America was betrayed by his own country, by his own country, and ironically enough, he gets sent back to the origin point of this country. So he sees an opportunity to seize that, and the, yeah. the whole thing exists. His appearance is the catalyst for the rise of these people because he comes too soon. Yeah, but by his arrival, it sets into motion all these other. Marvels appearing in that world, you know, uh, what three hundred years? And he's basically before the original, they ever were supposed to, and he is the, the original, original Marvel, Marvel hero. Yeah. I mean, he was born right out of World War Two, and the rest of the Marvel universe didn't show up to like twenty years later. But he's the originator, so I get it. I just feel like metaphorically, it's kind of a it makes sense. Yeah, maybe. I think it's stretching it. I, I don't see why we couldn't have just had a. Like a what if, like an else world essentially, an world. world. But I mean, all of this looping I mean, in makes it to me like more convoluted, and it doesn't add anything to the Slaughterhouse Five. Yes, is a book that is good because of the time travel, the way the story is told. To me, that's why that book is good. You remove that. And there's not much of a story there. But I kind of feel the same way about this book, too. Like, if you were to remove the rift, I wouldn't have really enjoyed just the characters set 400 years earlier. Yeah, because like I said, the thing is you got to take into consideration that book was coming out month by month. There was a lot of buzz around it just because of gaming. And I thought at the time, like, this is a very odd book to do. Like, why would you set Marvel? What is the hook of setting Marvel characters in the year 1602 other than... You know, just the sheer anachronism of it. And like I said, you, there are a lot of little subtle, subtle metaphors. I mean, hell, tying in the mutants or the witch breed and tying into the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, that word, that term is thrown around so much. I mean, the McCarthy witch hunts, you know, it's... It, that could have been a great book on its own. It and that's, my, and that's own. my point, is that there's a lot of stuff happened in a very short time, mm-hmm. and I don't think that the tool to do it was time travel. Was time travel? 
Well, she okay. So you have to look at it from two things. A fracture happens as a result of him going back. The universe repairs itself. It unmakes all the people who were born in this time, right? But it also creates a rift where the universe is split at that point, where it then creates a separate universe where... So this is technically, as you mentioned earlier, in the, in the 616 or whatever, and then it, it, there's a rift. So there's a universe where Virginia dies. None of the heroes come into being because his arrival in the past changes time from before his arrival as well as it going forward. So it changes everything. So the this universe splits off from Uatu's prime universe, right? Um, and and we we see that these adventures continue in something wholly different, right? And that to me is boring. Like like those stories, and I haven't I haven't read them, but like to me, I haven't read them because I don't just want to like read these people. And well, that's like too. saying the ultimate universe is boring because it's it's the ultimate universe and there's nothing like too much different than it. And there are some good ultimate comics. All of Spider Man was awesome, and all it is is another Spider Man. But without a gimmick, I think. And this yeah. is, just seems like a gimmick. Oh, it's, it's a period piece. That's all it is. Amos, all in all, after this long, amazing conversation that we've had about this book, what do you think about it? I thought it was a lot of fun. I, uh, I think Neil Gaiman does something that I often have an issue with in serialized stories is a lot of times it feels like there's fluff in the story. There are many arcs that don't matter. I feel like Planet Hulk has some of that where a, a story element is drawn out too long or they just do things that are kind of irrelevant, but I thought this was a pretty tight story. Everything served the central narrative pretty well, and so I really enjoyed that. Also, he writes dialogue really well, um, and... I thought it was a fun read. Where would you put this on the list? Uh, I would put it near the top. Really? Uh, well, on the list, I would probably... I might say I like it more than Red Sun. I don't think I like it as much as Moon Knight. So. I, cannot, I cannot put this above Red Sun. Nah. In fact, what's third on the list? That is Red Sun. What's fourth on the list? Criminal, Ed Brubaker. Which was also great. I liked it. Uh, and what's under Criminal? Uh, Starlight. I liked it more than Starlight, I think. I think. Maybe not. For me, I'm actually... I'm lower on the list with this. As I would definitely put this above Red Sun. No way. No way. No. no way. Two, two for yes. <laughs> I'd say below Red Sun, above Criminal. Uh, we got a tie. Is it, is it in the three spot or the four? Where did you say? So you, I think it's three. I, I like it. I don't like it as much as Moon Knight or Batman Year One, but I like it more than I like Red Sun and that rhyme. So that means it must be true. It, it has to be true. Uh, there's as there's the no way. would say. Oh wait, he's only in the. Well, I I'll put thing. it as low as we want to put it. So where where do you want to put it against Sequoia? I think I said um, below Red Sun, but above Criminal. So I guess that will put it in the number four slot. Let's directly in the middle of where he and I think it is and you think it is. I guess that's the appropriate place to compromise. I think that that would be Sequoia's compromise then, isn't it? <laughs> let it be known that August whatever, 2016, was the date of the signing of the Sequoia Compromise. <laughs> Comic book four on a list of how many? Is uh, that what we're doing? That would be ten now. Ten. Wow, that is too high for this book. All right. That's what... 
I've got outvoted, so we're putting it in at number four, above criminal, below Red Sun. Which Blake believes to be criminal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This book was fun at best. Damn, that's, that's so harsh. <laughs> I thought it was fantastic. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the group was uh, because you know the the Marvel Cinematic Universe is very fond of creating uh, genre films out of their individual properties I was going to ask the question if this would work as a period piece I got yelled no from both sides by, by Sequoia and, uh, and Blake so I'm not going to ask that instead what I will ask is if there was a single character that was not a part of this that you would have liked to have seen a part of it who would it be and how would they have incorporated them oh my god Hawkeye okay and how would he have worked in Archer. I mean, he like a hunter, like a huntsman. Oh yeah, a Robin Hood type <laughs> character. I mean, Definitely Robin you know, Hood. Yeah, a bandit. Who okay. knows? All right. Who would I like to see? Um, the Rhino. <laughs> I'd like to see the Rhino in this. Yeah, the only Spidey villain we got was the, the Vulture Man, and I don't know what he would do except like dress up like <laughs> he just wear armor. With the Rhinos armor aren't even in, <laughs> and like. He would have to be from Africa or something. I've ever seen a rhino. I, I don't know. I guess. Well, you know, the, the no world had been colonized, but you know, still. Yeah, you know who I would have included yeah. in this? Who? Come on now, Moon Knight. And so how? Now hold up. Now hold up. Yeah, he would have been an adventurer or an emissary or an envoy who had gone to Africa to meet with various members of royalty, and in his time there. He would have been betrayed at court and brought back to life by Conchu and returned to Europe to protect the Travelers of the Night. Let me guess, he would he look like a character from Assassin's Creed? Uh, <laughs> no, I think that's a little bit too outlandish. I think I think something very simple, like you know, just you know, white garment, just whatever. Because white would have been a very hard color to keep white yeah. in this time. Um, so he, but he would have had money, I suppose, mm-hmm. if he's if he's a direct analog. Not that he would necessarily have to be, but he could just be, a, and he would have a, a worldly view of things and, okay. and how he approaches things because he's got that other half of him. I'm changing my um, a beggar of alms by day. I'm changing my answer to Groot. He's just going to be a talking tree <laughs> that, that moves in. He's an ant that moves in from Sherwood Forest. <laughs> tree beard. Tree beard. All right, everyone. Um, we rambled on long enough. We appreciate you listening to us. We're going to watch videos of people um, vaping habanero peppers. From our trope to yours. Go get high. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>